0: You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Hi guys, it's a privilege to be here. Uh, Dave asked me to keep going in the Genesis series, so turn in your Bibles to Genesis 38. It is beautiful weather, appreciate it. Yesterday for us in Stockton, it was 108. (laughs) What we'll do is I'm going to go ahead and read the passage, and then we'll pray and get started this morning. Genesis 38, verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hurah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and he went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son and called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chesbib when she bore him, and Judah took a wife for Ur, the firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, "'Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother.'" But Odin knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, "'Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son grows up,' for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house.' In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. he and his friend Hurah the Edulmite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send a young goat from my flock. She said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Then Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge uh, from the woman's hand, and he he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And she was being brought out, or as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these things belong, I am pregnant. And she said, "'Please identify these things, the signet and the cord and the staff.' Then Judah identified them and said, "'She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again.' When the time of her labor came, there was twins in her womb, and when she, when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, "'This one came out first.' But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. Let's pray. Jesus, help us. Um, We thank you that, Lord, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And so, God, I pray by your Spirit you would help my mind, my heart, and my mouth teach this faithfully, that your saints would be built up and equipped and that, God, we would fall deeper in love with you. We pray that whatever holds us back from all that you have and all that you're doing, whether it be in joining you in the mission in this city or in deeper relationship with you, we pray, Jesus, that you would come by your Spirit and that you would minister to us as your people. I pray for those who are seeking you in this place that they might taste and see that you are good. And so, God, we give this time to you. Be present. Be lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Some of you might be thinking, what chapter are we in It seemed just last week in chapter 37, the story of Joseph had begun. In fact, quite a dramatic conclusion to the end of that story, as Joseph was thrown in a well, his brothers wanting to kill him for being a dreamer, and then being sold as a slave to the Ishmaelites, then being sold as a slave to the Egyptian Potiphar. And so we're ready, we're right there, and then all of a sudden it changes gears. Are we in the right chapter? What about the story of Joseph? What happens to Joseph in Egypt? Why the sudden change? Why is this happening in this way? It reminds me of the time uh, it was lost season 2. Where uh, some of you might remember, at the end of season one, you've got the hatch, and you're wondering, what's that. You've grown to love the characters. And all of a sudden, in season two, they introduce the tail section. They call them the tailies. And you're like, I don't want the tailies. I want to know what happened with the original characters. And, and, and so, we might, and, and as has been done, uh, some even speculate that this chapter was added in. That was an interruption. Something added at a later time. But there's something profound that happens in this chapter that speaks to us and uh, speaks to the situation of Judah. Hear this contrast. Uh, in Genesis 37, verse 26 to 27, as Joseph is sitting in the well. As he's, you know, contemplating and hearing his brothers talk, as they treat his life so casually, as they eat a meal. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our uh, hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. He said, what do we get, what does it profit us if we just kill him? Why don't we sell him and make some coin? Let's get rid of him that way. That way he's gone and we have something to show for our effort hard-hearted, cold-hearted, to treat a brother like this. And then in Genesis 44, the story is that this time, Joseph is second in Egypt. He's the ruler uh, at the world-ruling empire at that time. He's testing his brothers to see if they're repentant. Uh, he's put a silver chalice in the younger brother, Benjamin Sack, and he's uh, confronted them and said, I'm going to keep Benjamin. Uh, for myself, I'm going to make him a slave because he's violated my law by stealing from me. And who speaks up but Judah? And uh, Genesis 44, 33-34, listen. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Fascinating. What happens from Genesis 37, Judah cold hearted, let's make some coin on him, to him standing up for Benjamin and literally saying, me for him, I'll be the substitute, I will become the slave, let his judgment fall on me, and chapter 38 tells us the churning of a wicked father, the hope for a wicked father, the, the pursuit and the redemption of Uh, Judah. And so we'll dive into that uh, this morning and I pray all glean from it. So what I want to do is talk about the story first and lay the context and then glean some lessons from it. And so notice with me in verse 1, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hurrah. Now what does that mean at that time? It's the time that the, Joseph has been sold as a slave, it's the time that they went back to their father Jacob, and they showed him the coat of many colors, tattered down. They'd killed a goat, and they had put the uh, goat of the blood, or the blood of the goat all over it and said, "A wild beast must have torn him up, that Jacob is mourning, and it's at this time, at the height of his mourning period, that Judah says, "I'm out, I'm, da- I'm leaving." And it says, "He went down. Now all through this story, the narrative is drawing contrast and drawing similarities. That phrase, he went down, is also used of Joseph when he sold to the Egyptians. That Joseph goes down, that he sold to the Ishmaelites, he goes down. And there's some similarities and some contrast that the narrator wants to present to us. Number one, both sons have left their father's house, but under vastly different circumstances. Judah by his own choosing, Joseph because he was forced and he was sold. Both sons are away from their father in foreign lands. And fascinating, the parallel account which has Joseph facing temptation, which I'm sure you're here next week. Potiphar's wife coming on to him and saying, Come, sleep with me. And Joseph resisting that and, and being victorious against that temptation We're presented with the temptation by Tamar in chapter 38. And Jews, uh, Judah falls into it. It's thought, as commentators speculate, that he leaves Judah because he can't deal with the guilt of what they've done to Joseph. What the brothers have done and the pain that they've caused to their father. He weeps, and he, there's no end in sight. He wishes death upon Himself. Every bit of putting His arm around them, He brushes it away. There's no consoling their Father. The, the weeping is, is uh, uh, strong and deep, and it fills the whole house. And every attempt to comfort is batted away. What's fascinating and why people think he leaves because of this is because Judah is next in line to get the inheritance. Because of how Reuben blew it in Genesis 35 and because of the violence of Levi and Simeon in Genesis 34, Judah is next in line to get the, the lion's share of the inheritance and yet he risks that by leaving his father to move away somewhere else into a foreign land. And so it's thought that the, the guilt is weighing heavy upon him. And so he's got to get out of that situation and he's going to carry on his own life. So he goes and he finds a place to live. Now, this place is famous in scripture. One of Judah's descendants, David, King David, would be running for, uh, for his life from Saul as Saul hunted him because Saul was jealous. And some of the most beautiful psalms came out of this area as David would hide himself in a cave. So Judah marries a Canaanite. We see in verse 2, he has three sons. Ur, which means watchful. Onan, which means strength and vigorous. Shelah, which means drawn out or drawn out of the womb. And then we are introduced uh, to one of the main characters of 38, and that's Tamar. Tamar. You have to understand a bit of the timeline here. We find out in Genesis 37 and 41 and 45 that from the time that the brothers sold Joseph as a slave to the time where they're reunited with Joseph in Egypt, 22 years go by. So this is a period of uh, Jacob's account of those 22 years. Next, you'll soon be looking at as a church, Joseph's account of those 22 years. But here we are with uh, Judah's account. Uh, of these 22 years. So Tamar's introduced. He wants to find a wife uh, for his uh, oldest son, his firstborn. And when women were given, they were given super young. Uh, Just as they began to develop as a woman, they would be given. She's around 14, 15 years old. It's thought a very young girl. And this would be an arranged marriage. An arranged marriage to keep peace. He's a, a Judah sheep shearer. And so... They would marry to keep peace between the clans. So it's this arranged marriage to heir. And heir is wicked and God judges him. It's interesting because it doesn't say that he did something wicked in the text. But that he was. Everything he saw. Everything he did. The way he thought. It was, it was just constantly wicked. And God judges him. And so what happens is Judah says to his next son, Onan, according to the ancient Leveret custom which was to take care of a widow, to make sure she had sons and to carry on the family name or the brother's name. He says, uh, because heir didn't have any kids with Tamar, it was now the duty of the brother, the next one in line, to have and to give sons to the widow to establish the brother's name. Now here's what happens. Onan, who's now in line for the inheritance, he's like, I don't want to do this. Because if I have sons, then the inheritance goes to them. If Tamar has sons, because it's done in my brother's name, the inheritance goes to them. And so he practices a form, as the scripture says, of birth control. And what does the scripture say? God judges him as well. God judges him as well. Onan, who is in line for the inheritance... Practices a form of birth control. Because if she has a son by him, then the inheritance he wants will go to her. What's interesting is people want to make this passage about the sexual act that's talked about. But the sin that's grievous in God's eyes, the root sin of the fruit sin, is the injustice to a widow. That's what's happening in this passage. So what's wicked is that he cares nothing for Tamar's the widow's welfare, but only his own welfare, and God judges him. It's interesting because we see beginning to happen in Judah, and what I think have been happening a lot is, though, although the Lord Scripture explicitly states is responsible for the death of Judah's two sons, Judah believes Tamar is somehow responsible, so he withholds his last son Sheila, from her. Notice with me in verse 11. It should be up on the screen. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now on the surface that looks like a decent thing. Shelah is probably still young. And uh, he's going to wait for him to get a little older. This is what he tells Tamar. So he says, keep Uh, in the widow garments and go wait at your father's house but he does something very low and he really tries to take revenge against Tamar Uh, here's what's happening is that scripture says he has no intention of marrying Shelah to Tamar but he doesn't release her to go and marry somebody else so what Judah is doing by saying remain a widow I promise you're betrothed to him she's locked in a betrothal to Shelah, and what Judah is saying, with no intention to give his third son to her, is that he wants her to remain barren and a widow for the rest of her life. Go let your father take care of you. It was his responsibility to see a son raised up. He doesn't want to do it. In his mind, it's Tamar's fault for this whole fiasco. And so, in an act of revenge, he wants her to live barren and as a widow. He does not set her free and release her to marry somebody else. So she's locked in this betrayal, or or this betrothal. So Tamar begins to take things into uh, uh, her own hands. So notice in verse 12, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Temna to his sheep shears, he and his friend Harah the Adullamite. And Tamar has figured out at this time that Judah isn't going to give Shelah to her. Literally, in verse 12, it reads, after a long time. So years have gone by. In fact, at the end of verse 14, it says, For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. So she springs a trap. She has a plan. She's going to deal with the situation. So years have gone by uh, at this point. Judah's wife dies. He goes into mourning. And interesting, another contrast. Here Tamar is living for years, wearing her widow's garments. And now he mourns. And he takes the garments of mourning with no thought to Tamar, and then he takes those off and he goes about his business to begin sharing, sharing sheep again. So she finds out where he's going to be. She puts on a veil. She takes off her widow's garments, which would be recognized uh, as a widow, and she puts a veil on her face. She stands at the entrance of a city, Anam, uh, uh, which literally means eyes. She stands, and where she stands... It's where in that day and age, prostitutes would often uh, 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 show their wares to the passer -er. And what happens is, uh, thinking Tamar is a prostitute, he says, uh, let me come in and sleep with you. She says, what will you give me? He says, I'll give you a goat, which doesn't sound like much, but which was a considerable gift in that day and age. And she says, well, I want a pledge. I, I want something in pledge. Uh, for that, while I wait for the goat. And he says, Well, what do you want me to give you? And she says, Give me your, your, your signet, give me the cord and the, and the staff. And what that was was this, a, a round cylinder stone that would be etched. You know, it was what Judah would use to seal transactions. It was basically his wallet, it was his identity. Also on his staff as a sheep shearer, he had his identity engraved into it, and so people would know who he was. And so basically she says, give me your wallet. I want to hold your wallet until you bring this uh, uh, back. She steals his identity, as as we'll see. So Tamar sleeps with him. Uh, She gets pregnant, but after sleeping with him, she leaves and she puts her widow clothes back on. So Judah, I think feeling a little embarrassed, sends his friend to take the goat to this lady, I think he's a little embarrassed about the whole thing, Uh, but she's nowhere to be found. And so he begins to ask around, where's the prostitute? They're like, what prostitute? We don't have a prostitute around here. And so uh, he brings the goat back and he's like, I I asked around and he's like, oh no, how many people did you ask around, you know, about this? And and literally he's like, I don't want to be the laughingstock that I've been uh, conned uh, by a prostitute. Let her keep the things. I tried. I tried getting her the goat. didn't happen. And so he forgets about the whole idea. But three months later, uh, it could not hide any longer. And Tamar is pregnant. And the word comes to Judah, she's pregnant. She hasn't been married. And so this pregnancy is by immorality. And Judah's response is uh, severe to it. And he says, bring her out and burn her. Burning is crazy. It was like... For the the worst offenses, if that, but he wants, and think about it, burn her. Let let her let her burn and let the, the, the uh, pregnancy inside of her is just severe and vicious. I think it's up on the screen, but notice the, the contrast and the irony of this text. Judah wrongly thought that Tamar was to blame for the death of his sons. But ironically, now in him demanding her death, he is the threat to his sons that Tamar now carries. So, it gets word, they begin to drag her out, and she says, hey, I've got something. The father of these babies, these things belong to him, send them. Judah, verse 26 says, identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Something happens here. And we'll get into it. It's, it's pretty profound for him. Something drops for him that, that changes things. That leads into chapter 44 where Judah is different. But Judah, or Tamar then has the twin boys, Perez and Zariah. What are some of the lessons that we draw from this text? One of the first lessons that I see is that God loves Justice. God cares about justice. God cares about the widow. God cares about the orphan. God cares about the single parent. God cares about the foster kid. God cares about the broken and the downtrodden. He cares about them. And that He cares about His people caring about them. Because they're representing Him. God says strong things in Scripture. Whoever touches you, touches the apple of my eye. It's not a light thing that someone would do injustice to one of his uh, own, one of his kids. You know, when you get your back scratched, you don't say, hey, scratch my eyes too. You no, know, it's horrible. They make whole horror movies about eyes. Ah. That are embedded forever. You can't get them out. Jesus. In the Psalms it says that He keeps our tears in His bottle. That He'll wipe away one day when He comes back every tear from our eye. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. I will right every injustice. But what's crazy is when His own people participate in injustice. Here's this potent scripture in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 14 to 17. It says, your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. What he says is he says... All the activity, all the spirituality, all the singing, all the raising of the hands, all the the, the prayers aren't a sign of intimacy. What is a sign of a ferocious red hot love for me and with me will translate always into a red hot love for other people. And so what's apparent here is a lack of intimacy, a lack of nearness, but a measuring of one's spirituality by the spiritual things one does. He says, you're fast, I'm done. The feasts, the things done in my name. When, when people are forgotten, don't you remember? I came for you when you were an outcast. I pursued you when you were in the pit. I brought you out. How can we take grace so lightly, you know, often we think, well, the answer then is to, to, to let's, let's just go do it, let's find the needs and, and do it and, and prove ourselves to God in and, and that kind of way. But there's a fascinating verse in Second Corinthians five, where the Corinthians are asking Paul, Paul, why are you so crazy for the gospel in Jesus? You're insane." You go through shipwrecks, you, you, you get beat, you get stoned and left for dead. I mean, and you get up and you go back into the city and preach. What is it that has given you such a passion for people? Is it in a gospel and seeing people saved and reconciled to God? He says something amazing. He says, it's the love of God that compels me. And it's not ultimately his love for God, uh, but God's love for him. As he begins to reaccount the gospel the chief of sinners, the one who deserved no place in God's family, but that Christ Himself pursued, that Christ was judged in His place instead of Him, and as He sat on that, that Christ took His hell so He could get His heaven, and that God made Him a son, and Jesus shared with Him everything that belongs to Him and gives Him the same love that the Father loves the Son with. He goes, I can't keep it in. It's like a boiling pot. You get, it, it's going to explode. It, it's, I need a vent, and this is the vent. It compels me, it propels me. When I sit under and examine the gospel of grace, I can't help it. I can't help it. And I think a sign, church, that, that we're near the Father heart of God is that we will love. Well, it's explicit in Scripture. If we say we love God and hate our brother, we're a liar and the truth isn't in us. The next thing, and I think the main thing in this passage that this passage is speaking to, and the reason for the shift out of the Joseph narrative, uh, is this. It's absolutely amazing to me how Judah reacts to hearing that Tamar is pregnant. Burn her. It would be like me... uh, reacting in this situation, let's say my wife makes me eggs for breakfast. Now I like my eggs over easy, you know, so you can take the corn tortilla and just soup it up and delicious, right? So she brings me a plate of eggs and ah, they're medium to hard or yuck, you know, kind of a thing. And and so I, I look at them, kind of prod them with the fork and I just take the plate and I throw it across the room. Now that's not an appropriate response to burned eggs. There's something else going on deeper in my heart. And Judah's response to Tamar is not an appropriate response. He's showing his hand. There's something deeper going on in his heart. There's something deeper going on. There's more going on. Judah needs a scapegoat. Judah needs somebody to blame. Somebody once said, guilt is feeling bad about what one has done. Shame is feeling bad about what one is And Judah will not face himself. He will not face his own heart. He will not face the sin of what he's done to his brother, the grief that he's caused to his father, take any responsibility that he's been a terrible father and he's fathered evil sons. He takes no share of the blame for that, but he creates a world where others are to blame, other things are to blame. It's the circumstance, it's the situation, it's all them. He, he keeps himself out of that guilt, out of that feeling of shame by putting this on somebody else. And he's got this thing about Tamar. He's convinced himself and created a world that she's the cause for the death of his sons. He doesn't even give it a thought that they were evil. He knows better than that. But we all do this, don't we? We all participate in this. In fact, it started at the very beginning. Remember Adam and Eve, they're in the garden And sin comes into the world. They believe the serpent's lie. The serpent says, are you sure God really loves you? Are you sure he wants freedom? I mean, he's limiting you. You can't eat of every tree. What kind of freedom's that? I don't think he really loves you. He's putting borders and and he's putting boundaries on what you can do. I, I think if he loved you, he'd just let you decide for yourselves. So we bought the lie. We wanted to be our own masters. We wanted to decide for ourselves where boundaries were. What happens is we believe that and they experience shame. They were naked and unashamed and now they're shamed and they cover themselves in fig leaves. They hide from God. God says, why are you hiding? This is what we do. We walk together. Say because we are naked. But another way that we cover ourselves, and here's what this chapter is dealing with, and this is what Adam and Eve go right to, another way that we cover ourselves or take our eyes off of our own shame is to put somebody's eyes on somebody else's shame. Adam says, it's the wife you gave me. It's, it's the woman. It's her fault. She gave me it. The, the woman goes, no, it's, it's, it's the serpent. It's the created thing. And ever since, it's my spouse that's the problem in my marriage. It's my kids' If only they could behave a little better. It's my parents. It's the way that I was raised. It was the environment that I was raised in. Doug Larson said the reason people blame things on the previous generations is that there's only one other choice it's my boss, it's my coworkers. You see the tension in this, why we talk about justice first, because there is injustice in this world. There is a brokenness to this world. And, and some of us, all of us probably have been a victims of injustice one way or another, but this passage doesn't let us off by being just the victim, but it also says we also participate in that injustice and also act out the villain at times. But not only do we stop at blaming others, but ultimately we begin to blame God. Notice what Adam does. It's crazy. He literally takes God. He says, it's the wife you gave me. It's the woman you gave me. You gave me a defective product. If only you would have given me something better. Something I could have worked with, A better helpmate. It's ultimately your fault. God, it's your fault. Proverbs 19.3 says... When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. It's a powerful scripture that says when we fall flat on our face, the first thing we do is blame God. Our hearts rage at it. The writer of Memoir of a Cutter said, I started to wonder if God really existed. The world seemed so empty and lonely for there to be a God in it. But I figured He must exist because I kept blaming everything on Him. And I wonder what's at the root of our blaming. I think for some of us, and this is me right here, this is, this is my root right here, is we're convinced that if someone sees us through and through, if they really know what goes on in our hearts, what goes on in our minds, if they know our past... Then they will look at us and they'll reject us. They'll write us off and they'll want nothing to do with us. And so we perform the magician's sleight of hand. We distract them. We cast the blame on other people. We distract them from our own turmoil, our own weakness, and our own brokenness. So we create a world where every it's this person. This person's worse. This person's done this. This person's done this against me. I created a world like that. I think there's others of us who the root is more control. We're convinced that things should go a certain way. And that the universe would operate better if they went this certain way. And when they don't, we blame others. We ultimately blame God for that. We blame because things aren't working out the way they were supposed to. I didn't get the degree. I didn't get the job. I didn't get into the school. Why am I here? You know, and and so it should have gone this way. I was convinced that if it would have gone this way, then I would have been happy and fulfilled in my life. But now that it's not, I'm going to, it's you. You've done it. And I think that deep down underneath that, deep down in the root of it, is that we believe either God really isn't in control, or He really isn't as loving as He says He is. And so I've got to grab it. I've got to control it. Sure, we'll let him partner with us. We'll let him help us out when we need it. But we won't let him reign as a loving, sovereign God. Here's what happens to Judah. This is amazing. And it's from, uh, Robert Alter wrote, The Art of the Biblical Narrative. uh, And he's quoting something uh, from the rabbinical writings as they looked at this. And they said, this isn't an addition to the narrative. This This fits perfectly. 1,500 years ago. The Holy One be praised, He said to Judah. You deceived your father with a goat. Tamar will deceive you with a goat. The Holy One be praised, He said to Judah. You said to your father, Harker Nah. By your life, Tamar will say to you, Harker which in Hebrew is examine it. And here's what happens. It's amazing. Is that when uh, Judah went and they took the coat of many colors and it's covered in goat's blood, they bring it to Jacob and they say to him, Harker, they say, look at it, examine it, examine it. And then what happens as Tamar brings the signet ring, the cord, and she brings uh, uh, the staff. What does she say to him? But the exact same thing. Harker, nah, examine it, examine it, examine it. And the penny drops and the mask is ripped off and he's face to face with himself. Warts, bruises, and all. And he's cut to the heart. This is a pivotal turn. But we would do this passage an injustice if we were simply to remove the mask, if we were simply to bring us to a place of getting the fig leaves off. I love going other places because I can use like favorite stories in the Bible, and my own congregation is like, we heard this 50 times. Um, It's Zechariah 3. And the story is about Joshua the high priest. And it's a vision. It's a court room scene. And Satan's there and he's accusing the high priest Joshua. And he says, how are you letting this guy serve before you? He's covered in filthy garments. He's disgusting. He's unclean. He's unfit for service. The enemy of our souls is saying. And God responds, beautifully, because what God says is He says, yes, He is a brand plucked from the fire. He doesn't water the sin down. He doesn't water it down and go, oh, no, 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 He's really a decent person and once you get to know Him. <laughs> he says, He's more ash than He's flesh, but a bruised reed I will not break, a smoking wick I will not quench. And He says, take those garments off, bring them to me, and let them be clothed in new garments. And those garments don't disappear. I think about the woman caught in the act of adultery. John 8. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? They've all gone away. She says, there's none. He says, neither do I accuse you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How could he say that? Because Jesus knew full well He was going to be condemned for her. That He was going to wear the garments of that adultery. And be judged in her place. That he was going to wear the garments of Joshua the high priest. And be judged in his place. That he would wear the garments of Judah. And be judged in his place. The great storyline. The great grace of of the gospel. Is that before Jesus comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He comes as the lamb that was slain. For you and for me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says God made him who knew no sin to become sin. You're in my sin. Our unmasked sin. Our repentant sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see the beautiful thing about this parallel story. The 22 years that are happening as Joseph is living in purity. Judah's failing in purity. As Joseph is being raised up, Judah's family is fragmenting. And as much as I personally this morning would love to find myself in the story of Joseph and draw qualities from his life unto myself to be perfectly honest before you and before the Lord, my life is more consistent with Genesis 38 than Genesis 39 and on. But here's the glory of the gospel. Jesus came and wrapped himself in human flesh. And that while our lives were fragmenting, while they were broken, while we failed under temptation, while we gave in to hatred, while we were villains of injustice in every way he was perfect, he did not fail in temptation, but not just to show us this is the way you do it, but to do it for us because we never could. Do you understand the gospel teaches that as you unmask yourself He has a much better garment for you to wear His perfect righteous record and you wrap yourself in that He declares before heaven you are beautiful without flaw spotless and glorious. And when God sees you He sees the beauty and the obedience of Jesus and that changes things. And where Judah had to wait, right, for, to, for Joseph to reveal himself, is he said, I'll be the substitute. And then Joseph reveals himself and throws his arms around him and cries, and it's me, the brother, this morning, the greater Joseph is here, and he reveals himself first. He says, I was the substitute. And we love him because he first loved us. And he's waiting for you. Repentance is one of the most glorious things we could ever do to unmask, to stop blaming others for our problems, to let go, to come near to God. You see the distance and the barrier that blaming can create between others and between our relationship with Jesus. And He unmasks it. He knows. Do you know that Jesus sees you through and through? That He's intimately acquainted with all your ways? And He will never reject you. I will never leave you. I am with you always. That's the glory of the gospel the glory of our story and grace upon grace Tamar's twins show up in Matthew 1 in the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah who would come to take away the sin of the world so what do we do this morning I charge you church to take Jesus and Harker Na, examine him taste and see that he's good Think about the gospel. Think about the implications. Feel his arms around you and be healed this morning. Hold communion in your hand, his body broken for you so you could be made whole, his blood shed so that your sins, though they're as scarlet, could be whiter than snow. If you don't know Jesus, examine him and see that he's good. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this scripture. We thank You for this passage, and God, I just pray that You would stir within us a longing to be unmasked in Your presence. We thank You for wearing our garments on the cross and being judged in our place, and giving us Your perfect, beautiful garment. God, I pray that through intimacy, You would bear much fruit, much care for the broken, For the fatherless and the widow in this city. That God we would embody a whole different set of values. Values that are consistent with the kingdom of God and your gospel. That we not be only hearers but doers of the word. So we love you this morning. We turn to you in spirit. We just pray that you would work now in this time in this place. In Jesus name. Amen.